You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode number 78, our second in the series of John Favreau movies. And I realized that maybe we should explain a little bit why we picked John Favreau and then just kind of a little bit about John. What do you think, Mike? Sure, let's get Favreau. Okay. I know people like to hate on him because of all the Disney remakes and some Mandalorian nerds that get angry, but I just... I guess I appreciate somebody who loves something so much and chases it. And today when we talk about swingers, that is very much to me his, you know, kind of like second story in a way, like only... Right, not quite as good, but yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I'll just dive in. He was born in October of 1966. He was born in Flushing, Queens. And actually when I was in New York and I had that fabulous cab driver, I got the ride of my life because he was pointing out when he found out I was a filmmaker, he was pointing out all of the movie locations Mm -hmm. as we drove to the Y where I was staying. And it was just like, how did I get so lucky to get this guy? And as we were driving through, he pointed out, there's the projects where John Favreau grew up in wow. Flushing, Queens. And then he pointed, and over there is where they filmed some of Iron Man. So you're telling me that was John Favreau's cousin? It must have. I mean, right. but he pointed out other things. But oh, okay. How did I get that lucky? It was so great. Anyway, I will always remember that. Yeah. He's an only child, and you know those only oh, children. Dear. I'm an only child. So I can say that. Sadly, his mom died when he was 13. Very sad. Yeah. Oh. She died of leukemia. She was a Oof. Russian Jew, and his dad was an Italian Catholic. He dropped out of Hebrew school, but following his mom's death, his family made sure they scraped together what they could, and they made sure that he had a bar mitzvah. I was going to actually bring that up, because I feel like we shouldn't say swingers. We should say swingas. Swingas. Swingas, with a hard <laughs> G, like from Long Island. Right. But then I was going to say, are there any Jews in the film? And apparently there's a half a Jew. There is. In high school, his nickname was Johnny Hack because he was so good at hacky sack. Oh, wow, stoner. (laughs) Not D-Bob. That would come later. Right. In 1988, he moved to Chicago. He was so inspired by Second City and all of the comedians that came out of Second City, and he loved improv. And so he performed with the Improv Olympics and the Improv Institute in 94, which was a great year. Fantastic year. The beginning of the Dodge family. He played Eric the Clown in Seinfeld. I do not remember that. I know. the, The episode was like The Fire, I think was the name of the episode. So that's fun to look up. And then in 96, he did the movie we're going to talk about today, Swingers. He played Pete Becker in Friends, which was one of, was Monica's billionaire boyfriend. I mean, for being like, he didn't go to film school. He didn't go to acting school. I mean, he did the Improv Olympics and everything, but he did pretty good, pretty quick. I think Jerry Seinfeld, speaking of Seinfeld, would say that means he has talent. It bubbled to the top. And then he went on to an 01, followed up the Swingers with Maid, where he wrote and directed that. In 03, which we talked about, he did Elf. 
And then I thought this was a funny tidbit, and I tried to find this on YouTube and could not, folks. So sorry. In 05, in coordination with the film that we're going to talk about next week, Zathura, he appeared on The the Apprentice. And this wasn't Celebrity Apprentice. It was the one where it was just the randos. Mm -hmm. And he was from Sony Pictures, and he was asking the contestants. Their task for that week was to make the marketing for the film, Zathura. And I wish I could find that episode. (laughs) Right. I got to look harder and see if it's streaming somewhere so I can put it in the show notes. That was not fair to the film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those were the the other people. So like, what was Bill Ranzik? Maybe that was his season. So there could have been some good ideas. That's why I want to find it. I will find it, everybody. I will find it. Okay. I just feel like a big film, big budget film like that has an actual marketing department. Oh, I'm sure it did. Oh, no. It was just a reason to to promote the movie on the show, The Apprentice. Oh, okay. All right. So I'd be curious, can we get Carolyn on the show to talk about it? Yes, yes. And what was that guy, George? I want George. Oh, yeah, George. Yeah. Speaking of Jews, he he looks like he might yeah. be part of the tribe. <laughs> and then I ended my kind of history of him in 06 with Iron Man, because I feel like most people who are listening to this probably know then everything he did after that, and I didn't feel that was necessary. And then I just wanted to give a little shout out, because we have some lovers of this pastime. He credits D&D for giving Dungeons and Dragons, for giving him imagination, storytelling, and knowing how to create tone and balance. Okay, now love John Favreau even more. Even more! And so I just, anytime I've ever seen him, he is such a film nerd. He is such, I guess, I the, I, the passion in filmmaking comes through so strongly. And I think a lot of his films, even Chef that we're going to talk about at the end of the month, still has that indie vibe. I mean, you can't say that about Zathura. It's not an independent film. But because at a huge budget has lots of effects. Sorry, I don't want to talk about what we're going to talk about next week. But I just have always admired him and appreciate the enthusiasm that he brings to filmmaking. I want to go back to your statement that there are people who hate on him. Is there anybody who hates on him except the unpaid roommates in this house? I mean, it seems like (laughs) I I haven't encountered a person who doesn't like. Favre. I mean, I could, I, they maybe you don't love him, but I haven't encountered any hate except for well, that's true. a certain person about 30 feet away. <laughs> no, but I have heard, like when I was going to school, I feel like even as of late, people criticize like the Jungle Book and... That's fair because that runs into the category of why bother with a remake and people didn't like animation, it was creepy and stuff, but I feel like with the Mandalorian and the Disney stuff, he's kind of come back strong. Oh my gosh. I mean, and then like, for example, I was, I've been doing some research in preparation for this month. And when he did Iron Man, nobody wanted to touch Robert Downey Jr. And that movie. People forget that Marvel movies were nothing. Yeah. He, he said, and I couldn't believe that this was true. If Iron Man didn't work, Marvel was going under. I wouldn't be surprised. And so he saved, I mean, there would not be, just look at all of the movies and all of the actors that got to be in Marvel movies. And Billions of dollars and dozens or more of films. Yeah, I think that probably is underappreciated. I think it's a good film. I liked Iron Man quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I'm not the world's biggest Marvel fan. I've become less so over the years, but that was actually a really, really good film That's so good. for what it did. But again, there is no way to think of Iron Man without seeing Robert Downey Jr. now. And you're and right, he at wanted the time, RDJ. we knew him for naked sleepovers, right? <laughs> right? Not the best look, but there you have it. Right, right. And John basically told the studio, if I can't make it with him, you know, like, I, I kind of don't want to make it. Oh. So... 
He knew that RDJ would bring the tone, the sarcasm. And now look at like Deadpool and all these other movies. And I feel like every Marvel movie has a moment, if it's more of a serious one, where they kind of do add some sarcasm and some humor. And I believe you have to credit John and RDJ for that. Well, certainly, yes. And I would say John is obviously a fan of films. And some of that, I think, comes from the 80s action films. I'm sure John was, you know, formative in his life because we're almost the same age. So I'm sure he saw them at the same point in his life. And, And then, yeah, to be able to see kind of the diamond in the rough that was Robert Downey Jr. at that time, whereas now he's synonymous with Iron Man and makes huge coin per picture. And I think most people probably don't remember the struggles he went through mm-hmm. in, in the late 90s and in early 2000s. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So as you can tell, I think it's, it's, this is why, and I should have done this last week when we talked about Rudy, but this is why we wanted to do a whole month of John Favreau movies. We love his movies and we, we love him as a filmmaker. So we already did Kevin Smith and I think both of them are kind of in the same bucket in the sense that they're people who loved film who kind of scrabbled their way in. They didn't come through the giant studio system or or relative. Yeah, or certain big name film schools, etc. You know, I'm thinking Nick Cage obviously is related to Francis Ford Coppola. So there are people who have an advantage and nothing... That, that's not to belittle Nick's work. Nope. But I'm saying when you look at Kevin and you look at John, they're both kind of, you know, menches from the East Coast. These these guys who are really decent, good guys and who just hustled and got there. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't leave a trail of corpses behind them. They just kept doing the work. And, and I think that's what we respond to. So even though you're right, some of these films maybe don't qualify as independent films given the budget. There's that ethos, I think you would say, of kind of that independent film. I, I feel like, and I I don't know, but I feel like the crew on a John Favreau film would would come away feeling like he, they were treated well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any of the behind the scenes I've seen, people seem to be enjoying themselves. And just really quick, we had a listener who saw the movies that we picked and and inquired about why did we pick Rudy because he didn't direct Rudy. And I thought you had a really good answer. Right. I consider Rudy to be the start of his film career in Hollywood because that's where he met Vince Vaughn, who went on to be in Swingers. Mm -hmm. And he met Sean Astin, who, as we found out on Dinner for Five, gave him a lot of really good advice and helped him navigate the world of Hollywood at that time of his career. So I thought it was, even though he was only an actor playing D-Bob, it was formative. It was kind of the, the launching pad for his his work. Yeah, and I am going to put a link. If you are a cinephile like us, there is a great series that used to be on IFC, and the only place I've been able to find it is YouTube, and there's, there's a handful of episodes. And it's called Dinner for Five, what Mike was talking about. And it's him and four other people from the filmmaking business, actors, directors, producers, writers, and he assembles great people that sometimes have a common thread, but sometimes, right. you know, don't. And it's so entertaining. It really like, is. I also credit that show for introducing me to Dax Shepard. Oh, yeah. His episode is quite... Yeah. Uh, I love the Burt Reynolds episode. I love... There's one with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Garner. 
oh, and Stanley and Kevin Smith tells the Armageddon story on D for Five. That's how we know that story. Oh yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah. All right, we better get started with our um, yeah. Swingers episode because we are already 15 minutes in. So you're either going to get a bonus episode or a speed through Swingers. Oh. Swingers, okay, we're done, yay. <laughs> it was directed by Doug Lyman. It stars Vince Vaughn, Heather Graham, John Favreau, Ron Livingston, and Patrick Van Horn playing Sue. It was written by John Favreau, and it takes place all around Los Angeles with a lot of notable locations, Musso and Frank's, Grill, and... In Hollywood, the Dresden Room, the Stardust Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Oh, wait, this is Los Feliz. Oh, I think it just also in Los Feliz. But right. the Derby, the Fremont Hotel. Oh, sorry. The Stardust is not in Los Feliz. Yeah, I know. I was like, no, that's definitely. There is a definitely- daycare in Los Feliz. Yes. <laughs> and the Fremont Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The synopsis of this film is a wannabe actor has a hard time moving on from a breakup, but he is lucky to have supportive friends. The tagline for for this film, there's a few of them, so we you you get to tell me which one you like the best. Cocktails first, questions later. Okay. Get a nightlife. No. There ain't nothing wrong with letting a girl know that you're money and that you want to party. Absolutely no. No, that sounds like a line from the film that Vince would say, but not a great tagline. How about this? This movie plays reality. Eh. Okay, and the last one, which is is similar to the other long one, your money and you don't even know it. Now I'm going to go back. What was the first one? That was the best one. Cocktails first, questions later. Yeah, it's short, it's punchy. I don't know, maybe I could write something better, but that one's the best of those. (laughs) A little trivia for this. Mike White, one of our favorite writers, is one of the party goers in one of the films. And when John wrote this, he was kind of hearkening back to the Rat Pack. So Trent, Mikey, Sue, Rob, and Charles represent the five members of that original Rat Pack being Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, and Sammy Davis Jr. Mike, kick us off with this episode that we're deep into of Swingers with your pickup line. Okay, what if I don't want to do it? No, I, I want you to say the pickup line. hey In <laughs> context, I believe that Favreau's character of Mike is talking to Vince Vaughn's character of Trent. On the phone, right? Yeah, I think so. Or no, actually, they may be in that diner mm. where they end the film. And he's talking to him about this ridiculous Oh, right. Algorithm that Vince Vaughn has for when you call someone back. Right. Oh, right. (laughs) So it's interesting because I remember in my mind's eye, Vince Vaughn looking more like Wedding Crashers Vince Vaughn. Yeah. He looks a lot younger. And I I don't remember Ron Livingston being in this film. Like, gun to my head, I would have said, no, he wasn't in this film. No, his first one was Office Face, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know the guy. I like his work. I did not believe he was in this film. Yeah. Yeah. This baby face is all of them. Rather. Yeah. I noticed that John also looks quite a bit younger than we recognize him now. Which stands to reason. Right. Because it was a number of years ago. Yeah. We all looked younger then. (laughs) Yeah. 25 years ago, we all looked different. (laughs) What did you think of the cinematography of this film? I loved the opening with the photos of those local places combined with then right. the people in the club, the swingers, because it gave that, and it was that kind of jumping music. 
I actually, I had already made a note that I liked the opening montage of the, and I put bunny ears, air quotes, snapshots on this because, fun fact, they actually went out and shot all of those specifically, went through hair and makeup, did all of that for those snapshots. But I like that, even though it probably was a fair amount of time and money to do that many different looks for the snapshots. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious about that because a lot of this film was run and gun. Like, they didn't necessarily always have permits. They didn't have permits. Oh, yeah. But I meant the the costuming and, and the hair and makeup. I think they had to go through that. Just, you'd want the costumes to be different. Yeah. So that it looked like a different day. You know what I loved about this film, though? And it's so smart. This is such a, a lesson in filmmaking. It was set in modern day, but it was almost like he plunged us into this culture, this maybe subculture of this hearkening back to the 50s and 60s. So there suits were kind of more like a zoot suit or right yeah that that aesthetic yeah the girl's hair like heather graham who they just meet her in a bar but her hair is done in that 50s style the cars that they like to drive so you don't have to set dress like it's 1950 let's just immerse yourself in a culture of people who love that time yeah and so then when a an 84 you know toyota goes by Right. Nobody thinks like, hey, what's that car doing there? Yeah. Save yourself a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought yeah. while we were watching it. I noticed some steady cam in the beginning when he was walking around his apartment. I know how much you and Dustin Mora love a steady cam shot. Okay. I'm okay with steady cam. It's handheld that that, that bothers me and oh, Dustin, okay. I think. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I also made note of they had a great shot of the kind of, I guess you'd say neon or colored lights at the strip. <laughs> In the windshield? That was my very next comment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I loved that. It was so reminiscent of those Rat Pack movies where the reflection of the lights from the casinos almost obscures, almost, because you can still kind of see John and Vince sitting in the car. It was was really well done. I believe that the director was also the cinematographer for this one, if I remember correctly. Uh, You think John was the cinematographer? No, Doug Lyman. Oh, oh, oh. But speaking of run and gun, when they first go into the casino, there's a a two-shot where Vince and John are talking to each other. And for a fairly significant portion of it, John is out of focus. Right. Yeah. There were some, I thought you mentioned uh, quite a few yeah. focus issues. And that makes sense because from what I understand, they, again, they didn't have permits or really even permission. They were just shooting in this casino. Right. So they pretty much had one take. So they get back to the studio, the edit bay, and they're, oh my gosh, we, we, John's out of focus. Well, we got to use it anyway. That makes me feel comfortable. There's also in the casino, there was a really nice close-up of the $300 chips, <laughs> right. which we really don't, don't generally see a lot of close-up in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Again, maybe a little bit similar to Kevin Smith or Second Story. It's a lot of people talking. Right. It's, it's kind of a movie about relationships, people talking a lot. So you don't see a lot of that, the, but I thought that was a clever close-up of those three chips. Mm-hmm. There's also some good comedy visually, like when they get kicked off the high rollers table. And so you see, you don't notice that they've been kicked out until it pulls back, right? They cut to them talking and then the camera pulls back to show them with the dollar 
table people. Right. And there's Which, also, at that table, was his dad and grandmother. Awesome. And there's a couple sight gags where in the, the, the trailer mm-hmm. with the young ladies, they're <clears throat> intimate friends. Right. And the little accordion door opens and Vince's hand comes out holding the prophylactic. I thought that was a funny sight gag. <laughs> uh-huh. And then there's a whole conversation where Vince is sitting on the couch hugging a pillow. Right. Like, he was interrupted in the middle of his activities, and he's not particularly happy. No, that, he's, that John pou- he's has, clearly pouting. That has John has distracted the young ladies with his talk of his ex-girlfriend. Yes, yes. So, yeah, those are all funny sight gags. I mean, they use the cinematography to make the joke. Yes, yes. I thought you would appreciate this, too, that according to Favreau, the reason that his character opens the refrigerator when they're back in his apartment was because Don Lyman said that the scene was too dark and they needed some light. Oh, I love that. I know, so indie, right? We need more yeah. light. Open the refrigerator. Open the refrigerator. That is awesome. <laughs> so my favorite, though, is on the back of my page, uh, for those following along on the video. Okay. <laughs> is early in the film, they're talking about films. So again, we love movies that talk about movies. And they talk about the opening long steady cam shot from D- Goodfellas. Right. right. They go through the Copa. Yeah. And then what happens? They have a long steady cam shot where they go through the back of the derby and it goes through the kitchen. Oh, it was just it was so, so meta and awesome. I feel like that was for film nerds. Yeah, well, I think that's that's another nod or, you know, a feather in John's cap that he is such a lover of film that he even embeds it, calls it out, and then embeds it in his film. Yeah, that was just, it, to me, I was like, yay, nerd. Yeah. And you can, I mean, also speaking of, of film, there's a Reservoir Dogs poster up in Sue's apartment, right? Yes, so. yes. Yes. So the writing, this is an interesting little bit of trivia I discovered as I was doing my deep dive. He wrote this movie because his dad gave him some screenwriting software and he was just kind of curious how it works. So he just started up and, and this is what we got. Isn't wow. that amazing? That's pretty good. I love in the beginning, the writing and just the humor of him telling Vince, I'm not going to Vegas. I'm right. not going to Vegas. And then cut to that shot that we both loved right. of the lights reflected off the right. car where it's so blatantly obvious that, oh, here we are in Vegas. <laughs> and so there, I don't know if this qualifies in the couldn't be made today category. Right. But Vince Vaughn's character, he refers to himself in the third person as daddy and he refers to all women as babies. Not babes, but babies. Yeah. Kind of, uh, he was a creepy character and at one point, Mike says to Trent, I can't believe what an asshole you are. <laughs> right. And, and really early in the film and that really kind of establishes, even though I think Vince is playing Vince to a large degree. Mm-hmm. He called everybody baby because I actually made a note, were this many babies in the script <laughs> or is Vince adding these? Because he called Mike baby. Baby, oh. baby, baby. You need to go, you, We need to go to Vegas, baby. That's where you will be, you know. Oh, so maybe it's a verbal tick? Yeah, almost. I worked with a manager at In-N-Out Burger who called everyone cowboy. <laughs> maybe is that a trick if you don't remember people's names? You I just think make it must everybody. be. Yeah. Speaking of that, though, on the under costuming, at one point, Mike is wearing an In-N-Out Burger t-shirt. That's right. Very true. I loved in the writing, you skipped ahead a bit. I still had some writing things yeah, I wanted to- Yeah, let's keep going. I love it when he makes a comment and it's a very erudite comment. And oh, yeah, then he's great. like, oh, why did I say that? Because the waitress isn't going to know. And, you know, she's not going to understand my reference. And then she goes, hang on, Voltaire. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Such <laughs> that was, a great line. Yeah, that was fun. So stuff that doesn't kind of make 
sense, perhaps to a younger viewer. There's a point where the character of Mike wants to call his ex-girlfriend, and he says to the girls in the trailer in Vegas, I have a calling card, so it won't cost you anything. And I don't think people, young people, at least in the U.S. right now, understand that there was a time in which long-distance calls were very expensive. Very expensive. So to defray that cost, there were prepaid cards that you could purchase at, like, Costco or somewhere, and then you would dial in those digits instead, and it would give you a discount on those long-distance calls. Or it was how you could pay for it so that your roommate didn't get the bill. It was like, it was routing that long-distance call to this card. Right. This prepaid card, so your friend wouldn't have the charges on his phone. Right. So, that was, uh, like, context. They didn't really explain that, so I don't know if a a younger viewer or maybe somebody who didn't grow up with those calling cards would understand kind of what he's talking about. Well, we didn't have to explain it in 96. Well, yeah, he didn't. I thought this was good, because I know you were annoyed by the answering machine scenes, and the director, Doug Lyman, felt that the answering machine scenes contained too many messages, but Favreau was confident that it was the right number. And though he admitted, the crew was not very entertained by them. <laughs> so I thought it was clever that they used the answering machine messages for exposition. Yeah, yeah. On IMDb, mm-hmm. the answering machine is credited as being played by Macintalk, which mm-hmm. was a Mac-based voice speaking application mm-hmm. back in the day. Macintalk was born in 1984 and was used in Wall-E and Atop the Fourth Wall from 2008. Hmm. I haven't seen Atop the Fourth Wall and don't care for Wall-E, so I like Macintalk's work in Swingers. And it's inspired by Hal from 1968's mm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. I wonder if we should review War Games at some point, oh, Broderick I, and Sheedy. I think that would be a great one because... I'm curious how it holds up and if it's a little slow and if it's as cool as I remember. Right. So speaking of that, I am going to interrupt right here this chat about swingers to say that we are nearing the fourth quarter, which is when we decide what movies we're going to talk about in 2023. We have a long list of ideas that have already been provided from a few of our listeners, including Superfan RJ and Superfan Lee. So if you want a film theme or a specific movie to be considered, please email me at Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I at dodgemediaproductions.com. I'll have that email in the show notes and you can throw your favorite film or a film you would like us to talk about in the ring. I'm not guaranteeing it will get picked, but it will get considered. Okay. I just had an idea. Yeah. This is dangerous. Oh my gosh. Saying it live on air. Right. So film buff Doug Benson. Yeah. Yes. Liked to take suggestions for topics of his Doug Loves Movies game via tweets. And famously, I got a like from Doug for my suggestion of films about cooking would be called Time Bandits, T-H-Y-M-E, <laughs> which is a callback to uh, the movie, including very short actors. And I wonder if maybe our listeners, if they don't want to go like a whole month theme, could they at least come up with a fun, similar pun or clue? And we could do just a month of puns from our listeners. Any way that you guys help me make my life easier that I don't have to come up with content is highly welcomed. 
So I would love that. Yeah. Jumping back to costuming, the one I loved was like such a subtle show don't tell, but this is why we need to thank and appreciate and value our costumers. Did you notice Favreau's fat short tie that was about two inches above the the bottom, the point of the tie was about two inches above his belly button? I didn't notice that, but that's very, (laughs) like that's a 30s kind of style tie, right? Yeah. Well, and it also, to me, it made him look like kind of it was ill-fitting and kind of a nerd and i love that yeah our costume designers do a lot to communicate with costume yes they do they're very valued and another thing that informs the character and the story are the sets and the exterior and interior of mike peter's apartment favreau's character was actually john Favreau's building and apartment that he lived in and his downstairs neighbor was Adam Scott. Wait a second. Did they move furniture out of his apartment? Because that basically looked unoccupied. <laughs> I don't know. They, that wasn't in my trivia. But <laughs> I got to have a word with the there apartment. There you have Jeez, it. <laughs> that was pre-Iron Man. He needed some coin. Yeah. And we'll talk about this with budget. But I, as we were listening to this, I was like, how did they get the money for the soundtrack for this film? That is a pretty good question. Yeah. It had some good, good tunes. But maybe he was a friend of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, and so he they was gave able him. to, you know, get a, a good discount. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have a parting shot. So in as a bookend to your pickup line, what is your parting shot for this film? Mike? <laughs> That's it. The end of the film is just Vince Vaughn saying, Mike? 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 A bunch of times. Did it get your attention? Not really. I mean, I noticed that and I wrote it down, but I wasn't answering his question. <laughs> Did we have any head trauma? I did not note any head trauma. I was trying to think of when Sue encounters the tough guys. I think they're all still standing up. There's, you know, some shouting and but no no real punching or anything. Mm-hmm. In the game, the hockey game they're playing, mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky gets some pretty nasty head trauma. <laughs> The video game version, which actually is another kind of tie-in to Kevin Smith. Oh, you're right. Yeah. How about a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. I know Vince Vaughn made some time with the ladies before he was interrupted. I did not see an on-screen smoochie. Oh. I could have been wrong, though. I maybe missed it. Yeah, no, Super I think... Super fan RJ will, will, of course, <laughs> let me know. But... Yeah, I think he he was laying on top of her before, the, before John came in, and so there was smoochies. But generally, our smoochie is always reminiscent of that last kiss that usually happens between the lead and their... Right. Think Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan on the top of the Empire State. Right. And that didn't really happen because John didn't find his person well he th- i think it's implied that well, there heather might graham. be some yeah it might be a possibility of heather graham because he messed it up with i think it, her name was christy the woman he meets at the bar in the dressing right. room and then heather graham's character is lorraine which by the way there's a gag there where he's leaving all these messages to yeah. this this woman from the dressing room also the character of mike was pretty irritating i didn't really like him that much you mean because he was just kind of clumsy or yeah, he was a, he, he was a bit like of a dork and he just kept beating a dead horse. He he had a hard time moving on and I know that was the character. But it was a little irritating to live through. <laughs> so, let's see how about a driving review. I know All there right. was a 64 convertible Mercury Comet 
Caliente. Yes. The Caliente, I believe, was the high-end trim, but a 64 Mercury Comet convertible. That is a very nice car for a couple of broke guys. Right. It looked to be in pretty good repair. Even in 96, that would have been a, almost a 30-year-old car. Yeah, it but it was in good repair. That's the part where I think the money came in. I would believe them driving that car, but it'd be a beater. But would two guys, would you live in a shitty apartment, but then have a really nice car? Possibly. Yeah, there are people who put all their money into their car and their clothes and they, they look they look better than they actually... So you know. that when they go out, it's more showy. Right. I thought it was very LA that five people took five separate cars to go to a place. <laughs> I thought that was perfect. Yeah. So John Favreau's character of Mike drives a Chevy Cavalier. Mm-hmm. And he actually makes a lot, uh, comment, a joke to Lorraine about how crappy it is. And I think that's uh, that era, mid-80s Chevy Cavalier is probably not that exciting. However, nothing beats the 84 Dodge Aries K in Mary Kay Pink. <laughs> right, that so, one of them drove. Yeah, I think it was Sue, but I'm not sure. But that kind of says like you have no other options in life if you're driving a K car from Mary Kay. I mean, wow. <laughs> and then the last little bit was the club features prominently in this and that was boy was that a thing in the late 80s and early 90s everybody had one and they disappeared oh you don't mean the club that they would go to to dance no no no, no. you mean the security device that you would lock yeah, your steering wheel with automotive review yeah yes yeah the 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 device that you would yeah lock your your on your steering wheel in theory to prevent people from moving it which is interesting because at least american-made automobiles have always had a lock where if you don't have the key in the ignition you turn the wheel it locks in place to prevent people stealing your car so in retrospect it was probably entirely useless but it made us feel better i had a green one it did and unfortunately did you have a red one i had a red one it's also a murder weapon so yeah. that's unfortunate Maybe that's what put him out of business, is the murder. <laughs> okay, on that note, should we go to the numbers? <laughs> Let's go to the numbers. Zero corpses in this film. Okay, like I said, Swingers came out in 1996. The budget was $200,000. That's pretty budget. Yeah, that pretty much qualifies for an indie film. It scored 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics and audiences alike agree that this is a good film. Critics gave it 87% and the audience gives it 88. That's a little higher than I would have thought. Really? Yeah. Oh no, everybody I talk to loves this movie. Yeah, upon watching it again, I love it less than, than before. <laughs> Uh-oh, sorry, John. It yeah. runs just an hour and 36 minutes. Totally doable. It's rated R. It's a comedy drama. And it, unfortunately, it was a Miramax movie. <laughs> But also Doug Lyman Productions and Independent Pictures. It won the Newcomer of the Year Award at the Florida Film Critics Circle. Doug Lyman won for Best New Filmmaker at the MTV Movie and TV Awards. So congratulations to the filmmakers. And it did quite well considering it only cost them $200,000 Domestically, it brought in $4.5 million. Worldwide, it brought in $6.6 million. And just for Superfan RJ, the inflated adjustment for the domestic costs today, that's like making $9.3 million. Mm, good job. Yeah. So, huge hit. Like, normally, I have, like, how many multiples that is, but, what, 18 times? Or I hope John got points on that. Oh, my goodness. So, this one definitely did well. I like it. I think, you know, it's it definitely has that indie vibe, so it's maybe not as slick or classy or, like, 
polished, but maybe that's what I kind of dig about it. It reminds me of La La Land a little bit, but maybe it's just the Hollywood tie-ins. And hmm. it's and because Gosling's character kind of loved that earlier time, maybe that's what it's reminding. I'm going to guess La La Land had at least a hundred times the budget. Oh, yeah. Right. No, I meant it just tone and Right. Yeah, I think story. there is yeah, a parallel in basically a person struggling to make it in L.A., Sure. Yeah. I yeah. See that. All right, everybody, that will do it for this episode. Please join us next week when we are going to be talking about Zathura, a film that John directed and our favorite Dax Shepard is in. And if you want to give me suggestions for films for next year, you can also call us at 971-245-4148 and leave a message and tell me what movie or theme you would like to be considered. But never forget... Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. 